0: Hello, my name is Ryan Wynn, and this is How It's Reported, a podcast from the Emerald Podcast Network about how reporters do the work we do. And today we have...
1: Leslie Seltzer. Hi. Hi, how are you? Great. How are you doing, Ryan?
0: I'm great. So, Leslie is an opinion writer for the Emerald and a PhD student. She researches contemporary U.S. politics and culture, feminist studies, and theories and practice, according to her Emerald bio. She's written about national politics, race, and feminism. So, Leslie, how's your... What's your job like as a, an opinion writer? As an
1: opinion writer. Yeah. As opposed to my other eight that's, jobs. That's um, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, so I've been doing opinion columns for The Emerald since about September. I was really excited to get on board here. I've been, you know, one of those people that was always on Facebook sharing my opinion kind of unsolicited. <laughs> unsolicited. So it was extremely <laughs> excited. It was extremely exciting to me that somebody actually wanted to know what I thought. Um that was really great. Uh I think my job here has been sort of changing throughout the year. So at the beginning of the year, I was doing a lot of sort of larger issue, especially like a lot of national politics. This was right around the 2018 midterm. So I was doing a lot of analysis of these big national issues. Um, And then the further I've gone along working for the Emerald, the more I've become interested in sort of mo- more localized issues. I think that there is a lot of noise in journalism right now at the national level and there's kind of this loss of of local reporting and, and local opinion writing. Um, so I've been more interested specifically in issues that impact college students and UO students specifically. so I've been writing more about um, I sort of wrote about the graduate union. I'm writing next week I'm writing about uh sti awareness on college campuses and a variety of topics that are really relevant to this community
0: yeah and we'll put your story about sti awareness which should be coming out around the time this podcast is out in the link in the description below so
1: yeah assuming i get it done on time
0: <laughs> <laughs> if not then you'll know what happened um if not you
1: can follow me on twitter and see it then uh,
0: you can? Do you want to like? Um, yeah,
1: I'm at didactic underscore hag. So it's d i d a c t i c underscore. Can hag. we take
0: a moment and po- <laughs> and like dissect that a little bit? Oh
1: yeah, actually I think this is quite funny um, and meaningful. So the word didactic means kind of instructional, especially in a moral sense. I don't know if people actually Google that when they get my handle or not. but (laughs) So part of the reason I picked that, I originally was thinking about doing something like um, Feminist Killjoy, something, this is sort of Sarah Ahmed's vein of feminism where- Sarah Ahmed? Yes. Who is amazing. She wrote uh, Living a Feminist Life. And she sort of talks about the unpalatability sometimes of being an activist, how it sometimes means coming in and- quote-unquote killing joy, sort of being that person willing to ruin Thanksgiving dinner, um, being that person who's willing to point out a problem even if it means being treated as the problem. So I came around to didactic hag because I was thinking about this kind of historic lineage among feminists of being like witches and hags and kind of all of these mean names that we're often assigned. Uh, And then I just threw didactic on there on the front. So that's that's who I am. Your instructional auntie.
0: So when you... Before you begin writing these stories, how do you sort of formulate your ideas and articulate them properly?
1: Yeah. I think something that's really important that I've talked about with the other opinions writers a lot is... I think it's extremely disingenuous and unethical, in fact, to be writing a lot of opinions, pieces about things that you don't believe in yourself. Um, So I've seen this sometimes this is sort of the devil's advocate vein of (laughs) argumentation where people will make an argument in order just for it to be said or known. And I think that that, again, is quite disingenuous. I think the first thing you have to do before you sit down to write is really care and really already have an opinion and don't produce an opinion just for the sake of having it um i think that's a really important first step um so usually by the time i get to the paper i've already found a topic that i really genuinely care about and then the first thing i tend to do is i tend to work from personal experience outside towards sort of more data-driven kind of evidence and and work that other journalists are doing i tend to start with okay leslie what is your experience with this and what does that what orientation does that give you towards this issue Um, I also think that's part of the reason that opinions columns are so important is because in journalism, we often try to do this objective or unbiased type type of reporting where implicitly the author is supposed to minimize themselves and take themselves out of it. And I think the cool thing about opinions is you get to put yourself back in there and you get to be a voice in the conversation again. And we get to understand this issue as, hey, it's not strictly objective. It's not um, something you can only use or that facts will completely kind of encapsulate right like emotion is also a very very legitimate form of knowledge um, and personal experiences too so that's usually how I start I find something that's really important to me I start by accessing my personal experience around it and then I start moving towards what kind of a narrative can I weave around this what kind of an arc do I want to have by the end of this story like what kind of path do I want my readers to go through in thinking about this so a lot of times what will happen is uh, the first page I guess on my document, it looks like a page on the emerald, it would just look like some paragraphs. I tend to spend like setting up and problematizing an issue and saying like, here's really the significance of it, because here's kind of the worst of it. Here's like the worst thing that can happen. Or maybe I'll jump into a summary. If it's more political, usually do a summary of events. And then sort of in the middle section, I'll get into a lot of the nuances and complexities of it. That's usually when I start bringing in outside reporting which is another complicated process that we can talk about because it's so hard to find sources that you feel good about citing these days. Um, and then usually towards the end, I either reconnect it with a personal experience or I kind of broadened it to, here's some other people who have stakes in this, or here is kind of the larger implication of this problem if we don't address it somehow. And then you, know, you try to leave them with a really resounding thought or question at the end.
0: Yeah, so what you mentioned about sources earlier how do you choose um, the sources that you want to cite because you mentioned something very interesting you mentioned that it's hard to find what was the phrasing sources that you feel
1: comfortable citing absolutely um how do I choose sources like painstakingly painstakingly um, yeah that would be one word for it well so here's something we often talk about the truth crisis right that we're having right now but sometimes I think that gets distilled down to this issue of Half these people believe the truth and half of them don't. And I think it's a much more complicated situation than that. I think truth has always been kind of ephemeral, 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 it's always (laughs) been kind of ephemeral. It's always been kind of constructed and fleeting. And I think the difference today is that it's just so much more obvious to us when we have technologies that allow every single person to produce information whereas before in journalism you really had gatekeepers right you had your editor saying well we don't want to back up this information or we don't want to be responsible for it so we're not going to publish it and now it's really a free for all if anybody free for all it is it's anybody can publish anything and especially now that alternative news sources are being seen in many cases as more legitimate than traditional news sources um You know, like people are citing Huffington Post as often as The New York Times, as often as Breitbart News. Like that's the world that we live in today. Um, So something that I really think about is, first of all, I think uh, having kind of a historic legacy um, to uphold often makes publications a little more reliable because they really have that name brand and are very much susceptible to criticism. Um, So, again, I think The New York Times is probably the one that I cite the most often. Because I know, you know, if they publish something that is perhaps uncharitable or untrue, they're really – people are going to notice and they're going to say something and they're going to be responsible for it. Um, But at the same time, I also know, you know, the New York Times staff is 90 percent white. It's 70 percent male. What they're doing over there is not necessarily objective reporting. Um, And I think that positionality is absolutely something to consider when we're like, oh, what is objective fact reporting – well, if it's only coming from a particular identity group, their subjective experiences are built into that concept of objectivity. So we have to kind of interrogate that. So I think, again, I try to go with these like more time-honored news sources a lot of the times. I try to be a little critical about the actual information being given by the source within my argument if I can be um, or if there's, I think, some information that's being left out. Uh, And then I try to go to kind of, sources that report facts and figures without necessarily commentary. So like I think 538 is really really helpful for political source information. I use like the Pew Research Institute a lot. I use Politico some, but it's it's hard. It's a hard process.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you've definitely put a lot of thought into the particular sources you use. But when you were talking earlier about how Like the white male identity subjective, I don't know, reality is sort of built into our understanding of objectivity. Is that where you see opinion writing coming in?
1: Absolutely, because I think this is a time where like suddenly positionality is being recognized of like, oh, no, the author is a person. And no matter what you try to do to take that person out of it, um, they're in there. And not just that person. There's also this certain like sedimentation of knowledge and ideas and belief. Sedimentation? sedimentation so like you can think about it as like a sedimentary rock that's formed over time right it's um got all these layers to it and when you're holding the actual rock it's not separate from those layers that have come before right those layers are constitutive they don't go away so i think sometimes when you're thinking about like time we think about like a linear progression right we were at a and now we're at b and now mm-hmm. we're going to c and they're unrelated And I think sometimes that's how we think about information, too. But I think about it more as the sedimentary rock, this kind of like no ideas accumulate over time. And then we kind of forget that they're there. So you can think about this as like maybe like a history of white intellectualism. So, you know, when I like come into class on the first day with my students, a lot of the first thing I like to do in my globalization class is just ask them to identify countries on a map, on a global map. And surprise, they can only identify usually the U.S. and some European countries. And then I ask them to identify history. And usually it's the U.S. and European countries. And then they know about like slavery in Africa. They know about like colonization in South America. But that's really the extent of it. And I think that that is a really interesting demonstration of this history that has become so natural to us that we don't think about it being a product um, that is still shaping our own time, right? Like our time right now and our beliefs and our reality right now is a product that has been built up over time. And so when I'm thinking about objective reporting – what is that? It's not, it's not something that exists just today, just discreetly in time. It's something that's been built up over time.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like you're connecting how we interpret ideas that have been built up over time from history, historical ideas, and how that's taught. And you're kind of seeing that as built up from maybe the reporting that's being done over time. Is that right? or
1: Yeah, yeah. That and as well as just the language that we report in and even the idea of rationality and objectivity. Like, what is rational is extremely subjective. It definitely depends on, like, who you are and what context you're living within, right? Um, and so <laughs> I think when we get to reporting and we're like, well, this is objective reporting, depending on how complicated the situation is, a lot of it is, right? Because there's not that much interpretation, you know, if you're reporting on, like, well, uh, President Schultz said X, Y, Z, and people reacted X, Y, Z way. OK, well, that could be a pretty straightforward reporting situation, right? But once you get into something like politics, that's not straightforward. There's no way to come at that and be like, no, this is objective reporting. There's just not. And so I think that great thing about opinions is it reminds you um, – Hey, this is subjective. And in fact, the subjective is an important way for us to access these issues, because if we're just going to walk around pretending that the only way we want to we want to engage with this information is like, quote unquote, objectively, um, we're going to be leaving out all these important life experiences and nuances that go into understanding that issue.
0: That kind of reminds me of when people see. They like go on Twitter and they retweet comment an article with a headline, and then they'll say something else that's a headline. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't have any examples of that right now, but I'll see them and I'm like, I don't know how to feel about them. Is that almost what you're getting at? But just in a more like, that was a very casual way to say something.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not on Twitter as much, so I'm trying to like. Twitter's a horrible, horrible
0: black hole. We got a picture of it earlier this week.
1: I know. Oh yeah. Nice. That's a
0: picture of a black hole. Well, <laughs> that's a real the dunk. Shadow.
1: That's a real dunk on Twitter. Uh, Jack, <laughs> you need like a sound effect, like, um, really dunked him. No, yeah, I mean, well, okay, but no, I think that's an interesting um, example, and I think another example you could use would be like people on Facebook who are resharing screenshots from other websites. <laughs> right of information and none of it's sourced and no one's ever going through where yeah there is now this kind of accumulation of information without anybody going back to look at the production of that information or where it came from or anything like that um yeah does that really yeah (laughs) so
0: (laughs) when when we're thinking about how these objective sources well quote-unquote objective reporting is done how can we like both be critical of that but also I feel like when, if I were listening to this, I'd be like, well, what am I supposed to use as an information source? <laughs> That's how everything's I feel. like, it's so, <laughs> everything is awful and terrible when in reality, maybe there's like layers.
1: To no, it. yeah, there are. No, absolutely. I don't think we need to be kind of doing this dichotomous, like it's either or. Um, no, there's definitely more objective and less objective there are definitely like um degrees of reality um and i also don't want to suggest that like there is no reality whatsoever i mean apples still fall from trees um i'm aware of this people like to point that out they're like do you not <laughs> think that the world is like real and i'm like no it is i just think the way we interact with it is always like a relationship and the issue is when we forget it's a relationship so okay i think it's great um to hold up some of these new sources and say like these are more objective or these are kind of more ethical or whatever else you're going to say. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to leave behind the like, it is still a position. So I think it's great to look at this is a more objective source versus this is a less objective source as opposed to saying this is an objective source and this isn't. Like, I think that's less accurate anyway.
0: Okay, yeah. And when we're talking about newspapers in particular, I've heard we're pivoting a little bit. But I think it's also interesting, like, you see people on Twitter who, like – maybe retweet with comment an opinion story and then sort of attribute that opinion to the entire publication as a whole?
1: Ah, uh, yes.
0: Have you, do you, do you have a feeling about that? Being I don't an think anybody's, writer?
1: I don't think anybody's done that with me. Although someone did accuse me on the Emerald website, I don't know if you saw this, of running oh, no. a Maoist reeducation education camp. Um, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> that was their actual <laughs> phrasing.
0: I will not be linking that in the description. <laughs>
1: Which is not like the meanest thing that somebody has said to me, um, on the emerald but (laughs) yeah no 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 no. but so like i don't think i've ever had my views conflated with the whole of the emerald but i think that's because like my views are in some ways uh some might say more radical than you might expect from a college paper um but i think some of that issue is yeah when people aren't aware of the different categories of writing Um, so obviously when they're publishing an opinion piece no source is being like yes this is completely representative of what all of us believe that's not the purpose of an opinion piece and in fact you constantly see publications um putting out opinions pieces that maybe don't line up with maybe their political belief systems um which every organization has To some degree, whether they represent or acknowledge, it's not necessarily
0: monolithic.
1: No, it's not. Um, So yeah, I think some of that would just be like people need to do their source checking better. Like people need to do their homework. They yeah, they need to click through and they need to say like. I mean, I also think some of that can be unsympathetic, some of that can be strawmanning. So sometimes it's a lot easier for somebody to pick an opinion article and be like, look, the you know, XYZ publication is saying this, and clearly that's biased, therefore this is a crap publication. And it's like
0: That's exact that's a lot of what <laughs> I see personally.
1: It's like, no, that's just really for argumentation and research on your part. Um, because there is in fact a dedicated purpose of this section and the purpose is this is not objective reporting. So if you're going to pick that and be like, this is not objective, it's like, congrats, you put a rock behind a bush and then you found the rock and you're like, I discovered this rock. It's like, no, you put it there. It was it was there the whole time. This is not a discovery.
0: I really want to just select that entire <laughs> section and make it my ringtone. The last 30 <laughs> seconds of what just happened because like I feel like there's also like people I encounter who I talk about with like journalism and stuff, they're like, And this is something like a question that I'm sort of asking you, like, because like the Emerald published this, therefore they must agree with it.
1: No, I think the Emerald published this, therefore they are in some ways beholden to some of the information in it. So absolutely. I'm like, you know what, if the Emerald was out here publishing, uh, you know, pro neo-Nazi propaganda, I would absolutely hold the Emerald responsible for that. Yeah. So I think that there is though a difference between being responsible for the information you're publishing and agreeing with the information you are publishing, as well as like I mean, who is the emerald? Like who decides what their opinion is? Is it Mr. Coonerith? Is it is it Zach? Is it like who, is it the editor in chief? Is it the publisher? Is it you know? There's not going to be a single emerald person who's like well, this is what we believe. So
0: so Zach is our editor in chief, and Bill Coonerith is our. I'm not sure what is. Pub, like, title is, but he's like okay. publisher, or he's something. publisher or something yeah. like that. Yeah,
1: he's pretty nice. He's um, super nice. He's called me in his office like three times. It's
0: really uh, helpful. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, he calls me in
1: to be like, Oh, do you need help advancing your career? And I'm like, Thank you. Oh, that's
0: really nice. And so
1: I'm actually writing for Ethos right now, too.
0: Oh, okay. I don't know if you know. Do you want to give now. our listeners maybe a little sneak peek about what you're writing, or can you say?
1: Yeah, actually, I think our uh, new edition is coming out soon.
0: Yeah, Ethos is. <laughs> It's sort of, um, so under the umbrella of Emerald Media Group, there's the Daily Emerald, which is the weekly newspaper, but there's also Ethos, which is our quarterly magazine. You can, yeah. you can pick them up next to the Emerald stands or wherever they might be.
1: Yeah. It's also online, so you can always also give online. that an old Google.
0: I'll include the link in the description below, but did you want to go on and maybe talk a little bit what you yeah, are
1: working on? So I've I've just finished one article for them that I really like. put my blood, sweat, and tears into, so to speak. <laughs> No, I really did. This is like a real labor of love. Um, The article is called Performing Wellness. And basically what I'm talking about is the problem with having a kind of singular narrative of what mental illness looks like. Um, So we tend to think, you know, but if somebody is showing up at work and they're getting stuff done, then things can't be that bad. Right. Um, And especially, I think, in high pressure academic situations. And I'm really thinking about my experience as a grad student in particular with other grad students. Where there's the sense that we are invisible as people with struggles because we are able to achieve some kind of visible success, right? And then the issue becomes um, sort of having students, you know, I had a professor um, once. I I went into her office hours, and I actually had gone in there to, like, cry, (laughs) Oh, i sorry. Like, have a breakdown. No, it's fine because grad school is just really stressful. And sometimes you just like need to go in and be like, I don't know what's going on. And I'm very overwhelmed. And so some of my other grad student friends had been like, no, she was really great. I went in and I cried in her office and it was so helpful. And so I was like, OK, I'm going to go in there and cry. And it's going to be so helpful. I mean, it wasn't like explicitly being like crying is my purpose, but I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> Um, because I cry all the time. I'm like crying right now. No, I'm not. I mean, I kind of am. No. Um, right, do you want some water? I'm good, thank oh. you. <laughs> I'm not really crying for the listeners. There, okay. That's there we go. Leslie's very like sense of humor. Anyway,
0: this room is a little sweaty though. The podcast room we're in. I'm personally a little sweaty. I don't know if Leslie <laughs> is. I will say that full transparency.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm okay, but I'm not wearing. As heavy of clothing as you are, I don't think. But anyway, I went in there to talk to this, to kind of have this heart to heart with this professor and be vulnerable, right? Which is something that was really hard for me as a first generation student, especially who kind of was like, no, I have to look like I have it all together all the time because I'm secretly not supposed to be here. And it was an accident. They let me in. Um, but the minute I got into her office, she sort of was like, you know, Leslie, you just don't really strike me as somebody who ever gets anxious about anything. And. Um, so immediately I kind of smile and I'm like, you're so right. I've never been anxious about anything in my life, even though I was this constant like mess of anxiety all the time. I was able to put on this face of like, no, I'm happy and I'm loud and I'm outgoing and I'm articulate and therefore I don't appear as if I have those problems. So this was something that was happening to me that I was feeling like since I perform so well in class, um, there's this sense I feel among my colleagues and other professors that I must not experience the same kind of anxiety and insecurity and depression and all these other things that often go along with graduate study. And that was really frustrating to me um, because I also got this sense that like people wouldn't believe me, even if I did say so, because I wasn't kind of exhibiting these signs in a particular way. And so I was curious if this was a phenomena kind of among other grad students and very quickly discovered it was. Um, So I interviewed four or five students I think four students and one of them was an undergrad um, actually and all of them expressed this similar kind of you know I'm not allowed to be someone who is successful in public and who is happy in public and who has friends in public and also be this person who does not have it together at home. Um, You know, one of my friends was like, you know, I'll teach all day and I'll present at conferences and then I'll just try to go to the grocery store and I'll get stuck crying in my car because I just I can't overcome the anxiety of going inside and being in that space, even though I've been in public all day. And so I really wanted to kind of dig out some of those nuances of like, hey, we are very like multifaceted people. There are there are a lot of kind of depths to our personalities Um, and just because you're able to show up in a particular way when you need to professionally or socially doesn't mean that there's not someone else completely different at home and and that should be recognized even if somebody isn't you know I think sometimes we wait too late to make interventions like we wait until somebody has a public visible meltdown to acknowledge the fact that they're struggling when it's like in fact, they were struggling the entire time, but you didn't see it until this meltdown, and so it seemed like it wasn't happening. It seemed very sudden. But if you actually knew this person better, you would know there was a lot happening underneath. Um and so it was this really great process interviewing these people who were really 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 vulnerable with me. Really wonderful. I think I like cried during like half the interviews because <laughs> they that's, were so That's a feeling. Yeah, it was really and 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 one of the person I one of the people I was interviewing was even my roommate and like I found out all of these things about her that I had no idea and never would have guessed knowing her, even like living with her. I never would have guessed all of this was going on under the surface. And so um, part of my goal in that and in a lot of the work I do with the Emerald, I'm actually uh, my piece about I'm doing another piece on mental health like this week. Um, A lot of that has been about like and wrapping this back to opinions, the need to be sharing our lives and our experiences and valuing those (laughs) as sort of. An important part of public discourse um, i think it's very problematic when we think that the solution to having disagreements is focusing on quote unquote the facts or the objective kind of things where it's like in fact the facts sometimes don't matter as much as people's subjective perceptions of, of the world and reality
0: aren't those facts as well like subjective perceptions
1: yeah well i mean yeah so like is your lived experience a fact this is absolutely like i think something i would say yes your lived experience is a fact Um, obviously there's some nuances to that because the narrative you tell yourself obviously is going to shape the way that you perceive experiences and the way you remember them and tell stories about them. But no, it's factual. And I think a big part of this that we need to recognize is like, we were talking about white intellectualism earlier. Um, this idea of lived experience as fact is really something that comes out of black feminist thought. Um, because black feminists were recognizing, you know, why am I having to give you statistics on racism? When I'm living it every single day of my life, why am I having to like? Why is my experience not factual? And and that actually that devaluing of that that experience actually systematically makes things like racism invisible, right? Because now you've said here's this whole corpus of data information, right? That we're gonna say is not real or it's not factual or it's not whatever. Um, And it's just this sort of systematic kind of devaluing of people's lived experiences and perspectives and kind of suggesting that they can't tell their own stories. They can't understand their own experiences.
0: Yeah, and something else I wanted to double check was, so your ethos story is an opinion story or? I
1: Kind of would be. I don't even know how they categorize them. Yeah. I don't know if they're categorizing mine at all.
0: Yeah, I was like, yeah, because you brought up interviewing your roommate. Yeah. And I think that would be something interesting to talk about, like
1: Interviews with opinions. Yeah. Well, I mean it definitely wasn't like a strict reporting piece by any means. Okay. Like my my opinion what, was in there too. Would you want to talk about that? Yeah, I can talk about that with like okay. interviewing in relation to opinions pieces. Because I've done that as well when I was working on my union piece recently. I interviewed the president. Um,
0: and are you in the union?
1: I am in the union. Yeah. Okay. So it was interesting because I had to write the opinion piece on it. But so then they were like, because they had this issue where I actually initially had pitched a cover story about the union. And then they were like, no, you can't report on that because you're in the union. So we hit that issue of objectivity there. But so then they let me put it in the opinion section because they were going to do the tagline of like, you know, disclaimer, this person's in the union. And then it makes sense. Of course, I can share my opinion about the union while also being in it. Um, But, of course, they didn't want to be like, this is objective reporting because it's not. I have a vested interest. Um, So I think in relation to reporting opinion, well, writing opinion pieces that include some reporting on in terms of like interviewing. um, Something you have to be really careful about is I think what we would call subject effects. So if you're looking to tell a certain story and you're looking for a particular type of subject to tell that story about, if you're not careful, you wind up producing that. So sometimes you can overstep the boundary and sort of put words in people's mouths or characterize what they're saying in a particular way because it works with the story or the narrative you want to tell, but might not necessarily be the most um, legitimate representation of what they're saying or feeling. So I think that's something really, really hard to avoid doing in opinion pieces because your point (laughs) is to make an argument, right? And you're like, oh, but you're not saying what I need you to say, (laughs) Um, which is like (laughs) –
0: Because does it, like, when you're talking to people and they maybe, in in your words, say what they don't, don't say what you want to say, that, like, complicates the narrative, maybe?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I haven't had anybody necessarily say something that was, like, against what I wanted to say. But when I was doing the interviews for Ethos, I did have um, one person I was interviewing who kind of was talking on a very similar subject to mine, but not quite the same. um, And was really talking about, like, international student experiences with visibility And so some of that, like some of the craft, you might say, um, and that was figuring out, okay, how do I take these things that he's saying and relate them back to my topic? Because they are related, um, even if he's sort of talking about them in a slightly different register, they're a little less straightforward in terms of incorporating them as compared to my other interviews. So like that became a careful thing of like, okay, I need to somewhat modify the framing of what he's saying in order to make this piece flow and make it kind of all work. From a conceptual standpoint, but if I go too far, I'm going to mischaracterize what he's saying. Um, so for me, a lot of that came into you know every single time I would add a section. Uh, about somebody I was writing or had interviewed, I would send it along to them and be like, please let me know if I've mischaracterized you or if this doesn't seem like, you know, what you were thinking. I did a lot of double checking there. I did record the interviews so that I, you know, would have an actual record. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, like, apparently there are some people that still interview and just take notes, which I thought- saw seems wild. Uh, yeah, that, that seems very weird to me. And then the other thing, actually, that was very weird was um, – curating because when you're curating what parts of someone's interview you're going to keep you're now inserting your opinion into the representation of like them right
0: and that appears in like traditional news reporting as well
1: exactly so it's like again that like pesky kind of subjective intrusion under the artifice of sort of objectivity um where you want to be careful because i'm like obviously i'm not going to quote this like you know, some of these interviews are 45 minutes long, um, and I have three to four thousand words, I can't quote them word for word. And
0: three to four thousand words is a lot more than a traditional news space. I also want to add, it's not
1: enough for me. <laughs> I write, <laughs> like, I write ma- like 30 page research papers, so I'm like, this is not enough space.
0: Dang, okay, yeah, and like magazine reporting, I will say, is a lot longer yeah. than traditional news reporting. Traditional news reporting at the Emerald, maybe like. Well, news, news reporting. Yeah. I'm not sure about the opinion side. Opinions
1: is 500 to 800 words unless you're Leslie, and then it's like 1,600.
0: (laughs) Yeah, same over here. Same (laughs) over here. Um, It's around 500 to 800 for news. But yeah. um,
1: They always let me have extra space. (laughs) It's really nice. Thank you, editors.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Jason, who's our opinion editor. (laughs) Thanks, Jason. Oh, oh, I don't remember his other name. The other guy? Sam? Thanks, Sam, too. (laughs) Okay, so- We're coming to the end of our time. Yes. I want to ask you, do you consider opinion writing to be journalism? And that, I guess, question sort of reveals how I feel about (laughs) it. Because I call it opinion writing. Yeah. But how do you feel about it?
1: I mean, I think journalism is really a catch-all. I would say opinion writing is a part of journalism. I wouldn't necessarily say opinion writing is reporting. Um, I think I would agree with that distinction.
0: Would... Even if it has interviews in it or is there – or I just wanted to clarify
1: No, that. I still think if it's in the in the opinion section, even if it has interviews, there's still um, an acknowledgement of like I'm trying to convince you of something. And I think that might be really part of the difference is – I mean in opinions that is implicitly the purpose. Um, yeah, you're representing your opinion or your particular stance on something. But part of the purpose of that is to – convince people or otherwise sway people to see your side of things um whereas in straight reporting you're not necessarily trying to convince anybody of something and if you are
0: (laughs) that's a problem that's a problem that's a a red alarm it's a red flag yeah
1: so it's like you know like like i'm gonna say like breitbart is not real reporting (laughs) (laughs) Um, they're trying to convince you of things they're not reporting it's like a giant terrible it's like their whole website is just Terrible Opinions.net. Um, opinions no one wants to hear. Because they didn't get a .com because everybody... What's oh, not like, .com? I think it is a .com. I'm just making a joke about <laughs> them sucking a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think I would count it as journalism. But I do think that that's the difference. in impor- is is mostly in purpose. Is your purpose to just inform people and let them form their own opinions? Is it to persuade people? I will say I think there is... A particular type of reader implied by each format that's a little different. And I'll tell you what I mean by this. I think in reporting, the assumption is that your reader is basically like an individual rational actor, and the goal is to give them objective information and then they'll sort that through their own process and form their own opinion, right? They're gonna go through a basic rational process. Whereas as an opinion writer, you kind of don't assume that this person is going to do a calculation just based on on facts and figures, right? You're kind of entering into this being like, okay, rationality can be a bit iffy. It's definitely something you can persuade people to see certain things as rational or irrational. Um, and so it's not as much about giving them facts and figures and letting them form their own opinions. It's about trying to kind of guide them along the way and say, like, here's a particular way to interpret these facts and opinions that you might find appealing.
0: That's kind of reminds me, if, like, listeners, if you think back to an econ class, like, we consider, like, I used to be an econ major. I used to be a financial math and econ major. Um, Wow, what happened? um, I pivoted (laughs) hard to poli-sci and journalism, then I dropped poli-sci. So I think that reminds me of, like, how in economics, at least econ, like, 101, you consider person that you're like writing all these theories about as an individual rational actor but then with opinion writing it's like a little more complicated
1: well it's like an individual rational actor who's kind of in a vacuum and you're just gonna kind of drop objective information in there versus an individual who at some level is rational in some way. They they subscribe to some kind of regime of rationality, right? But they don't exist in a vacuum. They can be persuaded. A regime, yeah. No, I actually think this is a really I mean none of these, just so y'all know I'm not that smart. I just am well read. Uh, these are other (laughs) these are like other people's ideas. (laughs) Um, It's not mine. I'm like, oh I invented post structuralism. (laughs) No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't invent black feminist thought either. Uh, for <laughs> listeners out there, I am a white woman. That is not at all my legacy. Uh, so again, building off the backs of other giants here. But
0: go on. With you going on to
1: the regime word. So this is, would be like a Nietzschean word. Uh, he talked about like truth regimes, right? So this idea that you have particular structures which define what we can consider to be true. Right. Which is like pretty. I mean, if you go down to like a really basic level, it's pretty easy actually to figure out. So like uh, an idea I like to use is like free speech. Um, so would you say free speech is a true quality of like American? Like it's a thing that we really believe in. Oh, and we tend to think it's it's true. Yeah. Right. We have free speech. OK. Do you think you have free speech, generally speaking? Like That's yeah. a legal right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's a particular truth regime that we are actually locked in because there are people who aren't within that regime who are like, no, you don't have free speech. Of course you don't. Um, because you can't say X, Y, Z thing or you're going to get arrested. So obviously you don't, right? So what might seem really obvious to us on the inside is like, no, there are equal speech protections and that's so that we can all have free speech, right? That might seem really obvious to me as like a white speaker who's relatively privileged, right? But if I'm like a person of color and I'm like, no, you know what? I'm seeing neo-Nazis organizing, but I don't see any black nationalists out here being protected by the police as they like, you know, talk about how terrible white people are. Um, that's an obvious demonstration of like real conditions in the world that show like, no, like free speech isn't true in that way. And so like you have to kind of start unpacking. And this is what the project of epistemology would be, which is the study of the production of knowledge. You have to I know these are like big words, but it's really something to be thinking about is like not just what is true, what is knowledge, but how is that truth being produced? How is that knowledge being produced? And this goes back again to those like site source reporting where I'm like, you know, I have so much trouble with this because I don't necessarily believe what anybody is saying is true. I don't necessarily think what The New York Times is saying is always true. Like I'm pretty suspicious of some of their reporting in Venezuela, especially Um
0: And you say that's where opinion writing comes in, perhaps?
1: Yeah, so opinion writing can help with that because it helps show, like, no, yes, this is subjective again. But, I mean, I think a greater responsibility for all readers, maybe, is actually to treat everything like opinion writing. Because when you're treating something like opinion writing, you're looking for a purpose. You're trying to think, like, what is this person trying to convince me of? Why? How have they formed their argument? Where is this knowledge being produced? Where is this truth value coming from? Right. And when you're forced to do that process, you're really supposed to like you you have to evaluate the information in a much more complex way than if you're being handed something and you're thinking like this is straight reporting. This is just true. Right. You're not engaging with it on the same deep level of evaluation. And so, honestly, like, I'm like, I'd rather live in a world where everything was opinion pieces. Everything was labeled (laughs) opinion pieces. Um, Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'd still like, like, some actual just reporting. Like, I don't always want to know people's opinions on things, but quick clarification. But, no, I mean, maybe in a world where people treated um, everything that they're reading as having an opinion. Like, I'm not sure that it serves us that well, especially in today's political climate, to make such a big deal out of divorcing the two.
0: I think that's a... That's a good way to perhaps end this week's episode of That's How It's Rap. Reported. That's a
1: wrap. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. So I'm Ryan Wynn.
1: I'm Leslie Saucer.
0: And this has been How It's Reported. See y'all next week. Yay. To hear more from the Emerald Podcast Network, you can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to these episodes right on the Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Leave us a comment on SoundCloud or email us at podcast at dailyemerald.com. Thanks for tuning in.